You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. As we prepared to record this episode, at 6.30pm on Thursday the 8th of September 2022, we heard the very sad news of the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II at the age of 96. We know you will share with us our great sadness at her passing, and our thoughts are with her family. As the Queen always met her obligations, we shall, of course, continue with our recording. In future weeks, we will share with you the local response and plans to mark this occasion. God save the King. Hello and welcome to the 1895th edition of the St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 8th of September 2022. The editor of this edition is myself, Graham Parley. The producer is Colin Holmes. And your readers are Christian Jenner and myself, Graham Parley. We should also mention our processing team who work very hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We'll commence with the headlines. Planning Inspector to decide on 1,375 home development. Gas burning plant ruled as necessary evil at appeal. Drains unable to cope as downpour leaves streets looking like a river. Sugar factories delayed as drought pushes back the start of East Anglia's beet harvest. Proposals to build up to 1,375 homes on land northeast of Bury St Edmunds in Great Barton have gone to planning appeal. Berkeley St Joseph Homes Limited lodged the appeal with the planning inspectorate against the West Suffolk Council's non-determination of the scheme within an appropriate period. The proposal included an outline application for up to 1,375 homes. Access, including two new roundabouts on the A143 and creation of a new foot and cycleways, public open space, a new local centre, primary school, infrastructure and full planning permission for Phase 1 at 287 homes of the development. The original plans were submitted in December 2019 after substantial pre-application discussions. Since then, detailed discussion between the applicant and council had taken place. However, the appellant's case to the planning inspector said... The appellant and the council have not been able to reach agreement as regards highway and transport matters. This relates principally to the scope of mitigation required which is necessary to make the development acceptable in planning terms. The position of the highway authority is understood to be that the development proposals will give rise to unacceptable negative impacts on road safety. The position of the appellant is there will be no unacceptable or severe impact upon highway safety or capacity, subject to the package of mitigation proposed. 
Included in the mitigation package are proposals to improve an approach to Northgate Roundabout in Bury and to safeguard land around the development's northern access to facilitate a larger roundabout for any potential future Great Barton Bypass. West Suffolk Council said in its statement of case to the Planning Inspectorate that a modest number of key issues remained unresolved when the appeal was lodged. On June the 1st, the Council's Development Control Committee accepted officer recommendations to refuse permission on the grounds the scheme could have an unacceptable impact on highway safety and would result in severe impacts in the transport network, while the absence of a signed Section 106 agreement left the authority unable to secure the infrastructure improvements and financial contributions necessary to render the development satisfactory. Stating its case, the Council said the appeal had been submitted for non-determination as detailed reasons for refusal were not issued by the Council in advance of the appeal being submitted. Its case added that the appellant had disputed the District Council's request for financial contribution towards sports provision at the new Western Way development and the County Council's request for financial contribution towards improvements to Bury Library. A date for the appeal hearing has not yet been set. A gas-fired power plant in Sudbury has been given the go-ahead on appeal after a planning inspector deemed it was a necessary evil in the national transition to renewable energy. Balance Power Projects last week won its appeal to the Planning Inspectorate to allow the development of a gas-burning standby energy generation facility on land off Church Field Road as a stopgap provision to support the grid during periods of peak demand. The inspector's verdict overturns Baber District Council's decision to reject the plans, which was made almost exactly a year earlier by the narrow margin of six votes to five. In deciding the appeal, Planning Inspector Cullum Parker acknowledged that the proposal may appear to conflict with the authorities' climate emergency declaration and local policies when viewed out of context. But he concluded that the scheme should be considered in the context of the government's objective of mitigating and adapting to climate change, stating it will ensure reliable energy supply for up to 22,000 homes at peak times. While it might appear counterintuitive to use a fossil fuel, which creates carbon for a peak demand facility, it is, in a sense, a necessary evil, said Mr Parker. This is in order to ensure that homes and businesses can stay powered over the next 20 to 25 years during periods of peak demand and as renewable energies continue to replace traditional fossil fuel burning power stations. However, the appeal outcome was described as a senseless ruling by Skyview Systems, the business located next to the development site. As a climate-responsible, proactive business, we cannot comprehend the idea that such dependence on fossil fuels is still being promoted here in Suffolk, the company stated. 
The appeal to the planning inspectorate was lodged after Baber District Council's planning committee decided in August 2021 that a gas-burning facility contradicted its policy to cut carbon emissions. At the time, though, the committee members were warned by their officers, who had recommended the application for approval, that the outcome was likely to be challenged. Inspector Mr Parker determined that fossil fuel power stations may still be necessary for short periods when renewable outlet is too low excuse me, renewable output is too low to meet demand, as the UK gradually decarbonizes its electricity supply. I acknowledge, when considered in isolation, that the development will result in an increase in carbon emissions, he concluded. However, it would be a constituent element which would support a national transition to renewable and low-carbon energy generation, making an important contribution to an overall reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. By supporting renewable energy generation and reducing carbon emissions on a national scale, it would help to address the challenges of climate change and energy security. However, Skyview Systems, which has campaigned against the plans as they were first proposed, said the granting of permission for such a facility flies in the face of Baber's climate change statements and policies. A statement from Skyview, which was named Suffolk's greenest small business in 2021, said, We cannot fathom how this gas-burning plant will benefit Sudbury in any way whatsoever. As a company that specialises in environmental monitoring, we commissioned our own reports, which highlighted major errors in the planning application and raised serious questions about the noise pollution from the power plant. As highlighted when the plans were proposed, the plant's reported emissions rate is equivalent to the annual consumption of two households every hour of operation. Exposure to fossil fuel pollution is linked to negative health impacts for people living near these pollution sources. The impacts of climate change are also strongly linked with rising health risks while threatening our environment. The excessive pollution that the site will create in an area where there is a busy medical centre, Chilton Church and many businesses is hugely detrimental to public health, as well as acting as a deterrent to local employment. The power generated will not be dedicated to the people of Sudbury in any way, as the electricity will go straight into the grid. The facility is unmanned, therefore generating zero local employment and the impact on local wildlife is unthinkable. The effects of climate change are being felt right here in Suffolk, with temperatures over 38 degrees during the most recent heatwave. Proposed as a stopgap measure, the disturbing reality is that the 20 to 25 year plan will not just impact the local community as it now stands. The lasting effects of this senseless decision will adversely affect future generations for years to come. Drains unable to cope as downpour leaves streets looking like a river. Tom Murray, town councillor for St Olaf's Ward, said that planners or Suffolk highways had not considered the runoff from the new development and that cars driving through the floodwater only made the issue worse. 
both this time and in 2020. It got really bad very quickly and in the end people had to stop cars going through, he said. Residents should not have to be wading through flood water to lift drain covers, which in itself is highly dangerous for them. I did ask West Suffolk Council and Suffolk Highways about the drains being cleaned, and I asked if they would look at this from a highway's point of view to see if extra drainage needs to be put in place, should it happen again, which it could well do. There's a lot of things the Town Council would like to do which we can't do without the input of Suffolk Highways. He added that as many residents as possible should email their concerns to West Suffolk Council and Suffolk Highways. One of the residents who was out helping to clear the waterlogged street was Connor Cornell, who said the road was notorious for flooding. He took it upon himself to clear the drains of debris after he felt residents were receiving little support from official agencies. He said the drainage was inadequate and had not been cleaned fully as they contained sand from the nearby new housing development. A third resident, Sharon Pledger of Eagle Walk, described the street as looking like a river rushing past the house. Sharon added, The guys who cleaned it, they're just residents who are protecting their own homes. She said the issue needed to be sorted and sandbags should be left for residents in the future. Another resident, who wished not to be named, was disappointed that the Suffolk Highways did not arrive sooner. We phoned Suffolk Highways and yet they rock up nearly two hours later when residents are putting themselves at risk to protect their properties, she said. It was the same story as it was two years ago. Absolutely diabolical. Cars were driving through, just chucking the water. A spokesman for Suffolk Highway said, Last week, Suffolk saw parts of the county, particularly in the west, experience heavy rainfall within a short period of time, overwhelming the drainage system. Upon inspection to the sites reported to us, including St Olaf's Road, the flooding had dispersed and no issues were found. The ongoing drought has delayed the harvest of East Anglia's sugar beet crop, prompting British Sugar to push back the opening dates for its factories. The firm announced that its factories at Bury St Edmunds in Suffolk and Cantley in Norfolk will open later than usual this year, on October the 5th and the 20th respectively. It said this was due to exceptional climatic conditions over the summer with these factory areas receiving less rainfall than Whissington in West Norfolk and Newark in Nottinghamshire, which will open on September the 26th and 19th, respectfully. The later start dates will allow for greater yield improvements by leaving the crop in the ground longer, thereby hopefully benefiting from some much-needed rain, said a British sugar statement. East Anglian growers who are impacted and need to lift their crop before their contracted factory is open can deliver sugar beet to Whissington from September the 26th. Any additional cost from this increased distance will be met by British Sugar. 
One grower whose harvest has been affected is Andrew Blenkiron, director of the 10,500-acre Euston Estate, which spans the Norfolk-Suffolk border near Thetford. He said his beet fields were lucky enough to receive 50 millimetres of rain last Thursday, which had rebooted the crop and brought its leafy canopy back to life. But he has already lost 25% of his beet plants, which died during the drought, and he expects his harvest to be delayed by at least a month while the remaining roots recover. At the moment, the beet are still very small, about the size of a stubble turnip, he said. I would suggest they are a couple of months behind, but sugar beet has an amazing ability to catch up if we have a couple of months of reasonable rainfall. We also need it to be wet enough to get the roots out of the ground. The soil is so tight around them, and we have experienced this before, where you can break the root off as you try to get it out of the ground. Another few millimetres at the right time will sort that problem out. While he is more optimistic after last week's rain, Mr Blenkiron still estimates his overall sugar beet yields will be down 30% on average costing a potential £100,000 in lost revenue for a business already grappling with huge rises in energy, fuel and fertiliser costs. Plans to build a block of apartments on the site of a former bank have been withdrawn following multiple objections. Stanhorn Limited wanted to build a three-storey block of nine apartments on the empty Barclays Bank site in Tollgate Lane, Bury St Edmunds. However, several objections were made against the, the development, including from Suffolk County Council, which noted that the proposed six parking spaces was far below the 14 required. Bury St Edmunds Town Council recommended refusal on the grounds of overdevelopment layout, density and design issues, and insufficient parking spaces. A designed and access statement said the proposals which would much needed quality residential accommodation to a former brownfield site in the middle of an established residential area. However, the proposals were withdrawn last Monday. A woman who cared for nearly 300 evacuees during the Second World War celebrated her 100th birthday at the weekend. Washbrook resident Olive Vernow celebrated her centenary on Saturday. Her daughter Brenda described Olive as a completely independent woman who at 100 years old still lives on her own at home without carers. Joining her to celebrate her big day were some of the members of her extensive family which includes her six children, 11 grandchildren, 18 great-grandchildren and five great-great-grandchildren with another due in October. Olive said they were a good family and thoroughly enjoyed the party in the garden on Saturday, September the 3rd. Olive was born in Pakenham, Suffolk in 1922 and lived in the county until she left school at 14 and moved to London. In London, she worked as a cook in a large house in Grosvenor Square in Mayfair. She said, I always wanted to be a chef because I loved cooking. I still do. When the Second World War broke out, Olive moved to Buckinghamshire to care for children at an evacuee camp. 
There, she cared for close to 300 children who were evacuated from London. Olive said, I enjoyed it very much because I love children. It took me quite a while to prepare all their teas every day. When she left the camp, she returned to Suffolk to work for Cobbold's Brewery. Here, Olive met her husband with whom she had six children, Maureen, Barry, Barbara, Brenda, Kevin and Keith. The pair moved to the Orkney Islands, where Olive worked serving meals for naval officers. She moved back to Suffolk in the 1950s and has lived in her house in Washbrook since it was built 70 years ago. While her first three children were young, Olive worked picking potatoes from the fields before later holding a role at the Coptock Hotel. Olive says working hard is her secret to a long life, adding, I've always believed that whatever comes your way, you can just work it off. Don't ever give in. Now, she spends her time gardening, saying, I still potter in the garden when my knees let me. Her favourite plant is a rhododendron, which started as a cutting taken by her daughter Maureen from Chantry Park. Residents living on a development at Fordham have voiced their anger after moving into newly built homes, only to find incomplete houses with numerous plumbing and drainage problems. Having moved into the homes built by Murphic Group in Terence Place in the spring and summer of last year, residents have encountered several issues within the properties. The road surface in Terence Place has raised drains and is unfinished. A proposed park and green space in the centre of the cul-de-sac remains a pile of mud covered with weeds and 10 of the 27 houses remain empty. With Murphic Group having since gone into administration, we moved in last year in July and it's been a real struggle, said resident Peter Wilshaw. Outside there are raised drains everywhere and the green area that left was promised has just been left overgrown. Mr Wilshaw also questioned how the building work was signed off by East Cambridgeshire District Council. The speed the council moves infuriates us and nobody knows what is happening. There is no information being passed to us and apart from anything else, how was the work approved in the first place? The Murphic Group went into administration in January of this year and its former director, Wayne Murphitt, is currently awaiting trial. Having denied charges of providing false building work completion certificates in relation to 36 flats in the Grosvenor Yard just off Newmarket High Street. A spokesman for East Cambridgeshire District Council said, As the Planning and Building Control Authority, East Cambridgeshire District Council is aware of the related the issue related to drainage at Terence Place in Fordham. The development company for this site has gone into administration. We are therefore working with the receiver to ensure these issues can be resolved as soon as possible. Suffolk Punches were celebrated at a beautiful event in Easton to celebrate an icon of our county. Held at Easton Park were on display as part of the Celebrating the Suffolk Icon event. Whole Beach Scarlet was crowned Supreme Champion for 2022 at the event by the Suffolk Horse Society. 
All gate proceeds will be donated to the Suffolk Horse Society to help preserve the breed and conduct research into its genetics in a bid to help increase the population. It was beautiful, said farm manager Fiona Siddle. The weather was perfect, the horses were exceptional, and every single one of them looked incredible. Everyone worked so hard to get their horses ready, and they've all done it for the love of the horse. None of them have been paid. This is their passion, and this is their life. They want to make sure that this part of Suffolk's living history lives on for the next generation. The event saw a large turnout, with people of all ages in attendance. We had a great number of visitors, said Fiona. People were watching all day. As part of our living heritage, it's important to share and get these horses out there to as many people as possible. These were the tractors of Suffolk for many years, and they're a really important part of the county's history. Suffolk Horse Society say there are fewer than 500 purebred Suffolk horses registered in the UK and they had been notified of 41 foals being born in 2022 so far. Fiona hopes events and shows such as this can help increase numbers and encourage the next generation to continue the county's passion for them. We've had young handlers events, so there are some youngsters coming through, she said. We've got high hopes for the future of the breed. The Suffolk Horse Society help all the breeders. They work a lot on the genetics and are trying to extend the gene pool. All the money on the gate will be going to the society and donations are still being accepted. These are a really important part of our heritage and that's why events like this are so important. A book has been released that describes a ranger's unique experiences working for the National Trust protecting rare ground-nesting terns and pupping seals. A.G. Tagala has been a ranger in the east of England for almost a decade and based at Wiccan Fen for the last four years. Promoting the conservation work the National Trust has been doing at Blakeney in Norfolk for more than a century. A.G.'s book, The Unique Life of a Ranger, Seasons of Change on the Blakeney Point, is available at the Wiccan Fen shop, with a foreword by Megan McCubbin, with whom AJ worked on Springwatch, and endorsements from Chris Packham and Joe Harkness. The book is a tribute to the wonderful wildlife of the Norfolk coast and the Trust's staff and volunteers. AJ said, Few people have the privilege of living on an isolated nature reserve of international importance. I was 19 when I started my placement with the National Trust at Blakeney Point, so of many stories I wanted to share. For over a decade, I have been collecting information, keeping diaries and memorising stories. Local historian, author and tour guide Martin Taylor has trawled through his archive to find some of his favourite Bury St Edmunds stories from the past. Upon death in medieval times, it was most desirable to be buried within the church itself, to be nearer to God. Chantry chapels enabled the better off to have prayers said for them, the clergy being paid to do this through endowments. The oldest endowed service still in existence today, from 1481, is that of Jenkins Smythe, plain Johnny Smith, a great benefactor of the town. A contemporary of his was John Barrett, 
a rich clothier-cum-merchant who lived in Checker Square. John Barrett inherited family wealth and from his position in local guilds was able to advance his standing in society so much so he married Elizabeth, daughter of wealthy local landowner Sir Roger Drury. When John Barrett died in 1467, he left various bequests, including how he wanted his memory kept alive in St Mary's, his parish church. You can still see how he is remembered today. His Chantry Chapel ceiling with its mirrored stars looks down on him, entombed in his cadaver tomb, although slightly moved from its original position. Also known as a pardon tomb, a type of gisson or recumbent effigy, it was made during his lifetime, reminding him of the frailties of life. In skeletal form, with a winding sheet around him, it was believed then that if you gave alms to the poor, supported the church and led an unblemished life, the time you spent in purgatory while waiting to get into heaven would be minimal. On the tomb it is written, He that will sadly behold me with his eye may see his own morrow and learn to die. In modern parlance, you can't take it with you. There's no pocket on a shroud. The next article I've got is probably um, quite appropriate for this time. It's headed, Taking Steps to Save Energy. What you can do now to prepare for the most expensive winter in living memory. As the cost of living crisis intensifies, households have been warned they could face an annual energy bill in excess of £3,600 this winter. Previous predictions had bills rising to £2,800 for the average householder in October. And now energy consultant Cornwall Insight says a regular gas and electricity bill in England could reach £3,615 in the new year. While Richard Newdeg, Director of Regulation at USwitch, called for more government support to help households plan for the most expensive winter in living memory. The numbers can feel overwhelming and it's easy to feel helpless in the face of growing crisis. Peter Smith of the National Energy Action says, Now it's very difficult to find suppliers offering significantly cheaper deals and many of the most vulnerable have already cut back as much as they possibly can. While draft-proofing or using an eco-wash cycle will save a few pounds, it won't help people cope with the rise in energy bills. The government must increase the support now if people are to stay warm and safe this winter, which you might not be able to completely overhaul your bills. Every little helps, and some small moves now might get to you better financial shape to face the upcoming winter. Now, of course, uh, to be bang up to date, uh, the Prime Minister had announced some um, proposals for capping bills, so we'll see how that pans out. There are uh, five uh, suggestions that this article makes. So see if you are eligible for financial support. If you are vulnerable, have a medical condition, are elderly or have a child under five, then ask your supplier about their priority services register, says Smith. He recommends looking at 
niaorg.uk energy help for more advice on available support. That's nia spelt n-e-a dot org dot uk forward slash energy help. The second one is look into insulation. Will Owen, energy expert at uswitch.com, says insulating your home is one of the most significant ways you can save money on your energy bill. Installing wall and loft insulation will help reduce heat loss while double glazing prevents heat escaping through the windows. Think of it as an investment to future-proof your home and bills. The next suggestion is make some smaller moves. However, insulation can be pricey and not something everyone can afford right now. Will says if you are not in a position to install these larger energy-saving measures, it is possible to make lots of small, easy changes to your home. Energy-saving light bulbs are just as bright as the alternatives and will save you money. You should also evaluate where your furniture is positioned. If a sofa or armchair is in front of a radiator, this will absorb the heat rather than it spreading across the room. Placing draft excluders in front of doors will help keep the heat in the room. The next suggestion is invest in smart technology. Again, not everyone will be able to spend money on smart tech. But if you can, it could save you some cash in the long run. Jonathan Rolandi of the National Association of Property Buyers says smart heating apps and devices such as Hive help you to save by reminding you what you are spending and allowing you to turn the heating off when you're not home unexpectedly. A traditional timer heats the home whether somebody is there or not. Users report a 15% drop in heating costs, outweighing the price of the device, in no time. It also means you could turn your heating off remotely if you've forgotten to do so before leaving the house. On the more affordable end of the spectrum, Jonathan recommends buying energy-saving plugs which can cost as little as £5. They allow you to switch off items easily that might otherwise be on standby mode, he says. And the final point is reconsider your energy use. Often electricity is cheaper at night when demand is lower, suggests Jonathan. Think about using the delay setting on your dishwasher, washing machine and tumble dryer to get it to come on after 10pm. The eco mode on a dishwasher uses less energy by taking longer, allowing dishes to soak. Use this to save too. If you get into the habit of doing this now, you can already start saving money in preparation for winter. Risby Village Hall and Risby Primary School PTA have joined forces to stage a scarecrow trail and a sail trail promoting sustainable practices as part of the National Great Big Green Week. The event takes place on September the 25th between 10am and 2pm. The sail trail will allow residents to sell unwanted and pre-loved items, minimising waste. In addition, there will be a display of scarecrows throughout the village with residents competing to design the best straw man. A variety of prizes are on offer. 
Sophie Flux, Secretary for Risby Village Hall, said, Having a fun-filled community event with Risby Primary School PTA is a great way to bring the communities together and to highlight what we are all doing to make Risby a great place to be. The sale trail is a fantastic way to reuse or repurpose the things we no longer want within our local economy. And the Scarecrow Festival is a creative and fun way to repurpose unwearable clothes. The fee for entering a table or scarecrow for the event is £5, with registration closing on September the 12th. Bookings can be made with the school PTA or the Village Hall Committee. Changes have been drawn up for the entrance of the former Debenhams in Bury St Edmunds, ahead of a potential new retailer moving in. A planning amendment has been submitted by CBRE Investment Management to make minor changes to the main shop front entrance, providing access to the ground and first floors in the empty store at the Ark Shopping Centre. An application to West Suffolk Council said the work would meet the operational requirements of the proposed occupier of the ground and first floors. The changes include slightly reducing the width of the entrance and a drawing shows two glazed doors set within an aluminium panel surround. An area for signage is shown, but advertisement consent would need to be sought by the tenant. Planning documents over a servicing plan for the former Debenhams previously revealed that terms had been agreed with an unnamed high street retailer to occupy the ground and first floors of the empty shop. Any An acoustic assessment for an everyman cinema in the basement of the building had made reference to a Primark. It said, To the above of the demise is pr- proposed to be a Primark shopping centre. In July, Alan Hassell, manager of the Ark Shopping Centre, said they were unable to comment on speculation. Plans for the cinema, which would also contain a small bar restaurant, were approved last month. It would feature four screens and a smaller screen for private hire with 306 seats in total. The fortunes of 37 young curlews, rescued as eggs from RAF airfields and reared in captivity, are being followed by scientists from Thetford's British Trust for Ornithology. The birds were released on the Norfolk coast as part of an attempt to boost the UK curlew population. They have been fitted with tags, allowing researchers to track them. The UK is home to around 25% of the global curlew population. A summer of heritage-themed activities continued at full speed as large crowds of visitors experienced hundreds hundreds of years of history at Kentwell Hall over the bank holiday weekend. Off the back of its hands-on history days earlier in August, the Long Milford Tudor Manor opened for the annual Kentwell History Festival between Saturday and Monday. Over the course of the three days, families travelled back in time through around 2,000 years of history. As the grounds were divided into a variety of sections, each representing a different time period, from the Bronze Age all the way to the 1970s. 
Numerous activities, including games, obstacle courses and shows, performed by reenactment experts in period-appropriate costumes, were on offer to match each era. The next major public event at Kentwell Hall is in the annual Tudor Michaelmas weekend, a family day out that replicates the sights, sounds and smells of 1549, the year of Kent's Rebellion. For more information, go to Kentwell and its up-and-coming events. Go to online to www.kentwell.co.uk. An icon of Cockfield, keen cyclist and World War II veteran, has died aged 100. Norman Gregory, who celebrated his milestone birthday in January and was regularly seen in the village on his daily cycle rides, died last Monday. Norman was a prisoner of war in World War II before becoming a teacher at local schools. Together with Norman Kelly, he was one half of the cycling duo the Cockfield Normans and helped to raise thousands for the Suffolk Historic Churches Trust. We have many wonderful supporters who raise hundreds of pounds each year for the Trust, said Geoffrey Probert, Trust Chairman. No one could match the Cockfield Normans. Norman Gregory was an inspiration to us all. Mr Kelly said he will be remembered as the icon of Cockfield. He was described as fighting fit and full of wit. That was Norman all over. Born in Blythe, Northumberland, Norman was eight when his family moved to Suffolk. His lifelong love of cycling started in 1939 when he made a road trip to John O'Groats. Always looking to challenge himself, he then cycled to Land's End shortly afterwards. In 1940, he went to St John's College in York to train as a teacher. Earlier this year, he was awarded with an honorary degree from the university after writing to the Vice-Chancellor to inform her of his milestone birthday. During his time in York, his actions in helping to save lives after an air raid in the city led to him being made an honorary master of the university, the only time a student was honoured in such a way. With the country at war, after finishing his studies, Mr Gregory was called straight into action and joined the RAF. There he became one of the bomber boys of Bomber Command and was trained to fly Tiger Moths, Wellingtons, Halifaxes and Lancasters. In May 1944, Mr Gregory became a prisoner of war after his Lancaster was shot down over Germany. He spent the next year in captivity. Mr Gregory's wartime service earned him recognition when he was made a Knight of the Légion d'Honneur by the President of France. After the war, Norman began his teacher training career. He and his late wife Catherine, who taught domestic science, married in 1949. Mr Gregory, who was a great-grandfather, took a break from cycling while he was teaching, but started again after he retired. In the years prior to his death, he clocked up 5,000 miles a year. So now we're going to move on to do some letters. And this is from Graham Day, Stowmarket. And it's to do with Bill Turnbull. Sir, it was with great sadness that I heard of the death from prostate cancer of broadcasting legend Bill Turnbull. After starting his career in the newsroom of Radio Clyde, 
he emerged as a journalist who always achieved superb reports. As co-host of BBC Breakfast, he was polite and affable, but had the forensic ability required to challenge and question politicians who could be often economical with the truth. He made his home here with us in Suffolk, living near the coast. He was vociferous in his opposition to the proposed Sizewell Sea nuclear power station. I had the privilege of seeing him speak at a building society, AGM, a few years ago. He was witty, entertaining and correctly predicted that Donald Trump would face impeachment proceedings. His love of beekeeping and support of Wiccan wanderers are well known. The world has lost an exceptional broadcaster. Rest in peace, Bill. You and your contribution to the enrichment of our lives will never be forgotten. And this is an editorial comment from the Bury Free Press and it's headlined, In good news, the rickshaw is really on a roll. Give us more good news stories. You only ever dwell on the negatives. Why are you always dragging down the area? The emails and comments aimed at the Bury Free Press are always read, always considered and always hit home. The team of writers on the paper lives and breathes for our corner of West Suffolk and also lives in this corner of West Suffolk. They care as you do. So this week's good news story was an easy one to find and to focus on. The Bury St Edmunds rickshaw has been a success from day one. It's won accolades at our community awards and further afield, a Queen's Award for voluntary service being the latest nod to the good work being done pre- and post-Covid in transporting older and less mobile people around our lovely town. Then there was the Covid period itself and the rickshaw turned into a delivery service. Rarely has such a simple idea captivated everyone with its feel-good nature but the rickshaw is one project which has done that and long may it continue to roll sedately along our streets. Uh, my next letter is from Eddie Pryor, Gislingham. Strikes adding to misery. Sir, the country is in turmoil with energy prices going through the roof. Choices having to be made as to whether to have heat or food. Can't afford both. So what happens? Those lucky enough to have a job are on strike for more money and now it looks as if the TUC will be coordinating strikes. Turn the screw, why don't you? And don't give the disadvantaged people in this country another thought when goods can't get through the docks, public transport grinds to a halt and the landlines are out of order. The postal service has decided to walk out. Heaven forbid the bin men join in. This is from the lead pastor at the Bridge Community Church in Bury St Edmunds, David Oakley, who says, I read with interest Martin Taylor's historical account about West Road Church, formerly West Road Hall, in his Church That Keeps Growing article. I wanted to take the opportunity to provide an update to the present day and say that as of September 2021, the church is now called the Bridge Community Church. Due to the growth of the church, the development of a second meeting site at Wesley Middle School and helping some outlying village congregations, when the church updated its charitable governing documents, it was renamed Bridge Community Church to reflect more of who the church is and what it does rather than be restricted by a geographic name like West Road. 
During 2022, extensive redevelopment work is taking place within the Rest Road building so as to create a much-needed hub for our community on the west side of Bury. As this building work is completed phase by phase, this hub will increasingly offer meeting space, food provision, a warm place, support from the cradle to the grave, groups for refugees, carers and help for those who wish to explore and grow in the Christian faith. We are standing on the shoulders of giants as we look to continue to build on the legacy of West Road Hall and West Road Church in engaging and supporting our community on the west side of Bury. For more information about the church, please check out the website and the address is www.bridgecommunitychurch.co.uk. And my next letter is from Graham Day of Stowmarket. A timely reminder. Sir, how pleasing it was to see that the statue to commemorate the arrival of kinder transport children in Harwich during the Second World War will be installed on the quayside in Harwich. In addition, it is heartening that a considerable sum has been raised to enable the statue to be created and for an educational programme to be devised. It is a credit to the community that this has been achieved in a short space of time. Harwich's place in the kinder transport story has been all but forgotten, but is now being rightfully restored in the annals of history. The Statue Heritage Trail and other events will add further interest to Harwich, which is awakening and recovering its identity as a unique destination. Also, the statue depicting children disembarking onto a gangplank will also serve as a potent reminder of the tragedy of war and the terrifying inhumanity of mankind. I look forward to seeing it. This letter from Tom Murray of Bury St Edmunds is headlined, New Cinema, Yes, Was a Real Surprise. I was surprised the new proposed cinema complex was given the go-ahead at the former Debenham site in Bury St Edmunds. Apparently, an acoustic assessment was quoted. How can you make such a survey on an empty property? We live in direct contact with the Ark and Prospect Row entrances. We have no idea how it will affect us. Opening hours from 7.30am to 2.30am the following day, seven days a week, seem excessive. The Ark has a noise covenant at Prospect Row. We have few problems on Friday and Saturday nights from the local disco. Daily we struggle, people parking in the loading zone and disabled spaces. What happens with this proposal? Will they all park in the ARC shopping car parks? What extra noise will we have from another bar and restaurant, cinemas with over 300 person capacity on our doorsteps? No wonder the Bury St Edmunds town planning thought the hours excessive. Yes, it will bring in some jobs. Will it be a viable business? The Cineworld Cinema is reportedly hitting issues and also a restaurant nearby also closed. Current energy prices may affect their business plan. Funds are tight, getting tighter. Trips to the cinema may become a luxury. It's a huge space to heat and cool every day, 19 hours a day, 365 days a year. I'm sure we who live next door will make ourselves heard if our sleep is constantly, on a daily basis, affected with noise and traffic. Uh, my letter's from Bob Davril, Orchard Place, Sudbury. 
And this is an interesting letter, so let's see what you think. 35 coffees later, it was time to go home. According to a variety of debates I have witnessed on social media, many people are totally against parking charges being introduced in Sudbury. Several comments refer to the lack of things to do, which, if they were present, may justify a small charge for parking. I, on the other hand, have no problem finding things to keep me busy when popping into town. In fact, only three weeks ago, I spent almost an entire day in the town, and I managed to get 11 haircuts, consumed 35 cups of coffee, 8 meals, visited 7 charity shops, wandered down to the river by the croft, and made a 30-minute video of the raw sewage floating past. Popped into the toilets at the bus station and managed to pick up a severe case of beriberi, and spent the day thoroughly enjoyable and spent a thoroughly enjoyable hour searching the area in a vague hope of finding where our post office may be sighted at that particular time. I also got my nails done. This letter is from Vincent MacDonald in Bury St Edmunds. I live along Nowton Road near Nowton Park. I had visitors on Saturday, so wasn't really paying much attention to the rave that went on there that afternoon, but a few things I did notice. At about 1.45pm, three police cars outside my garden drew my attention with flashing lights. The officers spoke to, then handcuffed and took away two men walking towards the park. Fifteen minutes later, my daughter-in-law arrived and handed me a bottle and a beer can she had lifted from my glass. Ten minutes after that, a young woman was so drunk she staggered down the drive backwards and spread-eagled herself on my car. I retreated to the back of the house, but coming into the kitchen mid-afternoon to make tea, I had to knock on my window at four young men cutting across my garden. Fortunately, I went out in the evening to the theatre. Three adults and three children all enjoyed the secret garden, so missed some of the action. My daughter-in-law and one of my granddaughters walked up to theatre. On the way, a man grumbled to them that he left the rave early, having queued 40 minutes for a can of beer and then being charged 6 50 for it. When we came home at about 9.45, daughter-in-law and granddaughter saw a man so drunk he fell onto Nowton Road. A couple of passers-by were able to pull him off the road to lie on the pavement where they had to leave him. The rave wasn't as bad as I feared, fortunately, and I'm sure it was enjoyed by many of those that attended. But it is clear that our beloved Nowton Park is not a suitable location. It is a place for families to picnic, for joggers and dog walkers, for children to play in the play area, for strollers needing trees and quiet and a country ambiance. There are other more appropriate locations close by which have the experience to deal with raves and importantly are away from residential homes to make them more suitable. Places like Thetford Forest and Newmarket Racecourse I hope our council will take the necessary action in the future. I'm going to move off from letters to uh, touch on something slightly different. And this is Guildhall Heritage Open Days, Sunday the 11th and Sunday the 18th of September 2022, between 10am and 4pm, and admission is free. From imprisoning kidnapped monks to housing Cromwell soldiers, hosting abolitionist meetings to World War II secret military operations, the Guildhall has seen plenty of drama over the centuries. During Heritage Open Days, you can explore the story of this incredible building 
and the people of Bury St Edmunds throughout a millennium of change. Tours will be available on the day covering the Guildhall's unique history. You will also have free entry to a truly unique local feature, the Guildhall ROC Operations Room, the last of its kind left in the country. As part of the Heritage Open Day event, Astounding Invention explores some of the weird and wonderful technologies that helped secure victory during World War II. The Ops Room was the wartime home of 14 Group Royal Observer Corps, ROC, whose incredible efforts helped win the Battle of Britain. Visit the Guildhall during Heritage Open Days to explore the untold stories of these everyday heroes. A food waste charity is advising people to sniff, squeeze and sample their produce before throwing it away to save money on their weekly food shop. Still Good Food is a charity based in Bury St Edmunds with a store and new community fridge in Great Barton. Project coordinator Sarah Bullen said that while the environmental project's primary aim is reducing food waste, she has seen more and more people who are turning to them to save money on their food shopping. She added, there's no referral system because we're not a food bank. We're just doing our bit for the environment. And if that helps people out in tricky times, that's a bonus. Occasionally, as well as offering food, the charity receives donations of sanitary or cleaning products from supermarkets and were recently donated clothing by Aldi. In the midst of the cost of living crisis, Sarah offered her top tips to make the weekly shop stretch further. Firstly, she encouraged people to cook from scratch and think carefully when planning their meals, adding, A well-planned shopping list can cut your bills significantly, so avoid impulse buys and don't click the buy again button unless you've checked what's already in your cupboards. She also emphasised the importance of storing food well by doing a mini stock rotation of your kitchen cupboards to bring older products to the front and researching the best ways to make food last. Sarah added, Best before dates are about quality, not safety. Use by dates should be adhered to. But with best before dates, remember to sniff, squeeze and sample food before throwing it out. As part of their farm rescue project, Still Good Food connected with an orchard owner last year who couldn't sell his apples to supermarkets because of their yellow skins, despite the flavour being just as good as supermarket grade fruit. Charity volunteers collected the apples, which otherwise would have stayed on the trees, and distributed them to a wide range of places, including a Bury St Edmunds drop-in for the homeless and their shop in Great Barton. They also collected onions that were affected by the heatwave, but still good to eat, from a farmer in Hockwold earlier in the month. And our final uh, article is continuing the theme of shopping. And this one is Zero Emissions Delivery Service for Bury St Edmunds Market Launched. Shoppers at Bury St Edmunds Wednesday and Saturday markets can have their purchases taken home by cargo bike thanks to the town's new Zero Emissions Delivery Service. For £3.50, eco-carriers Bury St Edmunds will collect shopping from the market for delivery that day to anywhere in Bury. West Suffolk Council, who run the markets and have declared a climate emergency, supports the initiative, which will help with the target of reaching carbon neutral by 2030 and reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Councillor Peter Stevens, portfolio holder for operations for West Suffolk, for West Suffolk Council, said, 
This is a great service for the market, which not only promotes environmentally friendly shopping, but supports the local economy as well. We wish EcoCarries Bury St Edmunds the best of luck and hope local traders and the public alike will support this great new service. Markets are vital in not only helping local businesses and the economy thrive, but are also vital for the health and well-being of our residents and the environment. Libby Ranzetta, one of the directors of EcoCarries Bury St Edmunds, said, We want to make it easy for people to shop locally without feeling they have to bring the car into town to get everything home. The combination of climate emergency and high fuel prices increasingly points towards other ways of getting ourselves and our goods and items about. We hope this will be an attractive and convenient option. To arrange a delivery, shoppers should leave their purchases with a stall holder and call 01284 413 441. And now we've come to the end of this edition of St Edmunds St Edmundsbury's News Talk. So if you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given. Alternatively, you can put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation of the Bury Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week, so until then, from Christian, Colin and Graham, it's goodbye. listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.